Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the celebration of dads, of godly men and their influences in the lives of others. Thank you, Lord, that you were the perfect example of what it means to be a father by being our heavenly father. God, I pray as we look into your word today, Lord, that you would teach us and show us exactly the things that you have designed for us to live by as we influence those within our families. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much that you would send your own son to live a perfect life on earth and to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Lord, that's a level of love that we can't fully understand, but yet we benefit eternally from. So thank you for our time. Thank you for loving us. And bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a summer day like any other in the mid-1980s. My family and I were in our big steel conversion van. Some of you guys might remember conversion vans. The table on the back, and it would go down and become a bed. We were driving from our house on the northeast side of town out to uh, our family's property uh, further east. And my sister and I were... Um, doing some stuff in the back, building a little cushion for it, whatever else, you know, in those days before seatbelts were really a, a super serious thing. <laughs> and as we're driving along Highway 52, a car on our left started backing out of their driveway, and the oncoming car didn't think that that car was going to stop, and so it swerved into our lane, and now we're at highway speeds closing on a head-on collision course. Instinctively, my dad swerved to the left to avoid a head-on collision with his other car. We descended down into the ditch on our left side. Two of the tires blew, and his van began rolling time and time and time again. In my young mind, I was confused. It seemed a bit like slow motion, but I remember it vividly. The dust, the sound of glass breaking, metal tearing, the thudding every time that we would roll. I wasn't sure what was going on. But as things settled down and an eerie quiet came over, my sister and I crawled through the, the mangled back clamshell doors and I looked up to my left up, in the, up along the ditch and my brother was running toward the van. Somehow in the midst of this rolling, my brother had gotten ejected from this, this rolling vehicle and somehow didn't get crushed by it. We walked around to the passenger side where uh, my mom was sitting. About 90 seconds before that, my brother, in a way that only kids can, said, Mom, buckle your seatbelt. Sure. 90 seconds before that. By the time we got there, uh, my dad had already been um, cradling my mom in her head. She was really in very bad shape. Uh, he himself was um, injured and bleeding, but he didn't care about that. His, his attention was focused on his wife. And I'll never forget the way that parents love, because even the condition that my mom was in 
She's asking us, are you okay? Are you kids okay? She wanted to know if we're okay. And I see the sight before me, and I think, I'm not the one that should be having that question asked of me. So I was standing there, and I was talking to my parents. Passerby started stopping, offering to help. And there's a man in a green T-shirt that was standing to our left. And he was trying to help, and he takes his T-shirt off his back, and he hands it to my dad as a makeshift gauze. And however my little brain at that time processed, I remember a few minutes later looking over at this guy standing here shirtless and thinking to myself, he must be a dad. He's got to be. Because that's what dads do. They love unconditionally. They love sacrificially. It took an entire year, an entire year for my mom to recoup. Her injuries were severe, broken neck, collapsed lung, dozens of stitches in her head, crushed parts of her body. She laid in the hospital bed and had treatments that the doctor said, we'll do this in, in a number of steps because even grown men can't finish some of these treatments because they're just painful. She had a picture of our family taped to the ceiling of her hospital room. And she looked at that, she said, just do whatever you need to do. The love of a family is a unique thing. It brought us closer together. It continued to allow us to not take each other for granted. And today as we look at Psalm 127 and Solomon's writing, we're looking at this structure of a family. What does it mean, according to God, through Solomon, to structure our family in a way that aligns with who he is, that aligns with his character and his heart as well. Let me start by reading the five verses of Psalm 127. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to, to bed uh, late, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. This is only one of two psalms written by Solomon. And in typical Solomon fashion, he uses the word vain three times in two verses. It seems to be a bit of a theme for Solomon. If you remember, uh, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. But is it? Is all things, are all things vanity or meaningless? And I think what Solomon is saying here is that in an ultimate sense, yes, if we leave God out of the picture, unless the Lord. Today is Father's Day, and us dads, we like to build stuff. We like to take stuff apart and then put it back together and then figure out what to do with the extra pieces. 
And we like to create and build, maybe with the exception of anything at Ikea, but we like to build. But we know, as much as we wouldn't admit it, we know that if we want to build something right, we need a set of plans. Now let's just, decide, let's just say that, hypothetically, guys, we decide one day that we're going to build a house, but we decide we're just going to wing it. Plans are for sissies, right? So we're just going to, um, going to wing this thing. We've seen enough episodes of this old house. We've seen some extreme makeover. We've even seen a few reruns of the Red Green Show. So we're going to just tack this thing together and figure it out as we go and just hopefully, you know, it turns out well. Now, how many of us are going to sign up to live in that house that we've tacked together with no plans? As foolish as that would be to build a house with no plans, imagine the folly of building our lives and our families without any plan and without any blueprint. That's the vanity that Solomon is talking about here. That's the meaninglessness that Solomon is referring to. The good news is that God has given us very specific blueprints to be used in building and creating these things. We're going to look at those blueprints. We're going to look at some of the major aspects of those this morning. But before we do, I just want to offer a a couple of just real brief disclaimers. The first is that... um, We're going to be looking at this from a kind of an idealistic mindset. And I know that there's hurting parents, grandparents, and others out here today. Maybe you've had children who have walked away from the Lord or are are living in rebellion and have caused pain in your life. I want to walk this line carefully this morning because it's my desire to comfort those who are disturbed by these circumstances and maybe even disturb some people who are comfortable, but I have no intention or desire of disturbing the disturbed. And so if that's you, if you're among those who are hurting parents or others this morning, let me just encourage you to find an outlet to deal with both true guilt and false guilt. Let me just define those. True guilt are those things that we ought to own. The missteps that we've had in our life, the things that we look back and we say, you know what, I missed the mark. When those things happen, we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to own those things. We have to admit to them, confess them before the Lord, apologize to the people that we need to apologize to, and then by God's grace, move on from them. But there's also this, this component of false guilt. And this false guilt are those things that we take on ourselves, that we shoulder and we carry the weight around that we ought not to carry. God said, I never intended you to hold yourself hostage with certain things. In a very ultimate sense, it's God, not us, that provides growth, Paul says in 1, Timothy, or, uh, 1 Corinthians 3. And so if there are things that we are piling on ourselves, and and weighing our hearts down with that we ought not to, then God says, let those things go and just continue to pray, continue to influence, continue to press into those relationships, but don't hold yourself hostage to them. I also realize that for others, the topic of family may seem a little less relevant than, um, than we may think, but let me just contest that I think it's very relevant to all of us. Maybe for some of, some of us here, uh, maybe you're single, 
or maybe um, you are married without children. Maybe you're divorced and dealing with kind of a split household situation. Maybe you're an empty nester, whatever the case might be. But God designed the building of families to be a group effort. If you or if I were the, the, the main contractor of building a house, we wouldn't be doing all of it by ourselves. We would hire subcontractors to take care of the electrical and the plumbing and the cabinet work and the landscaping and all the other th- details that go into that. And I can tell you firsthand that families, the nuclear families that we think of, need subcontractors within the church body to stand alongside the rest of us and continue investing in us. God has a role for each of us in the nuclear family and also in the church family. And so let's take a moment, let's roll out God's blueprints, let's put paperweights in the corner and just spend a few minutes looking at what are these components that God has called us to live by. And I think we'll immediately notice a a, a number of things. And there's fill in the blanks in your bulletin. If you want to follow those, you're welcome to. The first thing that we'll notice about God's blueprints, according to Psalm 127, is that God himself is the chief architect. God himself is the chief architect. If you look at a set of plans, building plans, in the bottom right corner is the name of the designer and the builder. And that's where God's name rightly goes with respect to building the family and building our homes. Two times in the first verse, Solomon says, unless the Lord. You see, the origination point, the starting point is with God. Unless the Lord. We can't simply wing it, Solomon says, with regard to building our families. At the early part of last century, there was a man whose Model T car had broken down on the side of the road. He's trying all sorts of things to fix it and tinkering with this and adjusting that. He, he didn't know what to do. He just couldn't get the thing going. A while later, a second man stopped by. He asked a couple questions. He went right to the engine. He fixed a couple things, and after a minute or two, he said, fire it up. And the engine fired just like that. The driver of the car was dumbfounded. He said, how in the world did you know not only what was wrong, but how to fix it and He said, young man, my name is Henry Ford. I built that car, I designed that car, and I know what it takes to make it run. In the same way, God has built the family. God is the designer, the architect, if you will, of the family and of the home. And he knows exactly what it takes to make it run. The second thing that we see from God's blueprints is that he wants us to guard the gate of our home. To guard the gate of our home. Solomon talks about watching over the city. And the way that we watch over the city, Solomon says, is by guarding the gate of our home, by watching over our families. Because the speed of the city is dictated by the speed of the families that live in that city. If you propagate healthy families, that grows into a healthy community overall. If you remember the promise that God made to Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Your descendants are going to be like the sand on the seashore and like the stars in the night sky. And how did he do that? He began with Abraham's own family and the descendants of those families and those descendants as well. Parents, grandparents, dads, church, family, 
we are called to be the watchmen that Solomon is referring to. Now, ultimately, God is the protector of our home. We sometimes will um, recognize the fact that a 9 mil Glock will keep us safe from intruders, but we need spiritual protection to keep our homes from destruction. One of the ways that we can um, guard the gates of our home is found in Psalm 119, verses 1 to 2 and verses 9 to 11. It says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. Down to verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. And this psalm is reminding us that as we guard the gate of our home, the filter of that is God's very word. What we let in, how we process things, Inside the walls of our homes and our families, it's through God's word. He's given us instruction. He's given us examples. He's given us guidelines and guideposts and boundaries. God's word is that filter. And I think there's two big components that we guard against as we look at guarding the gates of our home. The first is content. Content. This could be friends and the influence of people in our lives and the lives of our family. What kind of influence is our family realizing through friends? The other aspect is through media. There's great helpful media out there, like Right Now Media. If you haven't subscribed to that, do that. It's full of, it's like Netflix for Bible studies. It's amazing. Church subscribes and pays for it. It's available to you. Call the front office, they'll set you up. But there's a lot of junk out there in media too. We have to guard our homes from content. And then there's the influence that's really, really scary, scary stuff. Vikings paraphernalia, for example. We have to guard the gates closely of our homes. Apologies to any Viking fans out there. I tried to find a uh, Bears jersey for Jared's sake, but I didn't. (laughs) The other way we need to guard the gates of our home it's through our time. It's through our time. There's a study that they, they layered together, a study of people who were parents who have finished the parenting years and um, people who were in the family and they were looking back on their own childhood years. And as they layered these two uh, pieces of feedback together, they realized that the thing that people valued most, the people the thing that people missed most when they didn't have it and longed for most is time. And it's not just time from the standpoint of clicking seconds down on a watch. I'm going to show you two pictures on the screen. The first is a father and daughter and they're spending time together, right? They're in the same room. It's a father and a daughter and time is ticking by. And the daughter is sitting here wondering how long Do I have to wait? Will my dad pay attention to me? Will he invest in me? Will he even care about the fact that I'm sitting here? Do I matter enough for him to invest time in me? 
It's not just the quantity of time, it's the quality of time. Contrast that with picture two. There's another father, another daughter. Let's just say they're spending the same quantity of time together. But in this case, they're engaged, they're laughing, they're sharing little secrets, they're making eye contact. There's an element of value to that time because it's guarded well. It's guarded well. We need to guard the gates of our home with respect to both time and content. The third thing we see from God's blueprints is that he wants us to model it. He wants us to model it. I have to just say here that there are so many dads and other men in this very room, even as I look out, that have modeled this so well. You've been such a great example of what it means to be a godly man and husband and father and grandfather. I have learned so much from you, and I know countless others have as well. So I just first of all want to say thank you for your example. But I also recognize that there's times in probably all of our lives where we feel like we need a little bit of remodeling. Reminds me of a a second grade boy who had a project to list who is your life hero. And all the students wrote down their life hero. The second grade boy brought his uh, sheet home and he, he had it sitting on the table. And on that sheet were the letters D A D. And his father was just beside himself. He said, I am just so honored that you would have thought of me as your hero. I mean, I, I don't feel like I even maybe qualify for that, but son, I am just so encouraged by that. Why, why did you pick me? I mean, there's, there's so many people out there. Why did you pick me? And the son said, I don't know how to spell Sylvester Stallone. God wants us to model our faith in a way that's worth emulating. A way that's worth uh, our kids living their life after ours. If, if my own children uh, lived the faith that I had, would that be encouraging or discouraging to me? I don't want there to be a disconnect between what I say and what I do. I don't want there to be a disconnect between who I am on Sunday and who I am on a Tuesday. How well are we modeling it for our our families? In verse 2 again, Solomon says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You know, we get distracted and we get off track too. We do. But what Solomon is saying in verse 2 is that our tendency can be to focus all of our time and all of our attention on building a house and all the stuff in that house at the expense of building a home and the people in that home. How well are we guarding those things? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, imitate me, how? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. The fourth thing that we see in um, God's blueprints this model for our family, is to reverse engineer it. To reverse engineer it. Another way to say this is to begin with the end in mind. Now, if we started building a house, we have a picture of what that house is going to look like. We have a mock-up, we have a drawing or a picture of some sort. 
Each board that we trim, every screw that, uh, that goes in are micro steps which incrementally move us in the direction of that desired outcome. Now, one thing is for certain. Influence in the life of our family and our children, influence is like ocean waves. It never stops crashing and, and sweeping over us. Good or bad, there's always influence. Some of those waves are filled with sharks. Some of those waves are filled with life-giving water. Our job, though, is to train and to orchestrate circumstances and influences and big and small decisions that step-by-step shape and mold our families into who the master builder has designed them to be. The fifth thing that we see in God's blueprints is that we ought to use the right tool for the job. We have to use the right tool for the job. I'll be the first to admit that I've used a a screwdriver for uh, a pry bar, occasionally a chisel. I've used the side of wrenches and ratchets for a hammer. Um, Everybody's like, I'm never lending him a tool ever again. (laughs) There are times uh, that using the wrong tool the wrong way can maybe get the job done, but sometimes it can also create more headache and more work. Imagine we're putting up a picture and tacking in a small finishing nail with a sledgehammer. We have much more work than we had at the beginning. And so in verse 3, Solomon says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. So I think there's a couple things Solomon is reminding us here as we think about using the right tool for the right job. We need to recognize that God has created each of us as unique individuals. This requires us to be a student of the people in our families, in our homes, a student of our children, to understand how they're wired, what makes them tick, what's the best way to encourage them, what's the best way to discipline them, what's the best way to spend time with them, what's their love language, to really truly understand them uniquely as individuals, how they're designed. This was evident in my own family uh, a few weeks ago. Um, My boys had... uh, gotten home from school, and that night there was a movie night at their school, and it was just really uh, a movie they were looking forward to seeing. And uh, Allison and I said, you know what, if you guys finish your homework and finish your chores, then we'll be able to go to this movie night. And uh, we sat down for supper, it was before we were going to leave for this movie, and we said, well, what's the update? How did it go on the home- homework and how did it go on the chores? And lo and behold, they weren't done. So we decided to uh, tap into our children for parenting advice, and we said, well, what do you guys think the right course of action is from here? Same stock, same upbringing. One of our, one of our boys said, you know what, Dad? We didn't do our stuff. We didn't do what we needed to do. We don't deserve to go to this movie. We ought to probably just stay home and finish what we told you we were going to finish. I'm like, wow, that's pretty impressive. Another one of my sons says, Dad, we didn't get our stuff done. Probably don't deserve to go to the movie. But I've learned my lesson. We serve a God of grace. Let's move on. Where's the popcorn? I kid you not. Same kids, same family, two drastically different results. Not even necessarily wrong, either of them, but just a a perspective difference there. The other thing Solomon reminds us in this verse is that children are a blessing 
and they're a reward. Are we viewing them as a blessing and as a reward? Are we enjoying the time that we have with them? Because one of the things that sometimes keeps me up at night is that you can never get the seconds or the hours or the years back, ever. You can never get those back. As we raise our, our children, I think it's sometimes tempting to get into this sort of survival mode. If we can just get through the day, well, if we can just get through the next 10 minutes sometimes. But I think the mentality that God is painting through Psalm 127 is different than that. Sometimes we make excuses about the former things that we discussed about faith, about investing in our families well. And sometimes we say things like, my kids are just young, we're busy, you know, their mom and I are tired, let's just put this faith thing on pause, let's just kind of, you know, hold off till they know more and they're just more mature and we have more time, like that ever happens. And I call that wood frog theology. Wood frog theology. Let's just hit pause. Let's just sideline this whole thing because it's just too much effort. It's, just, it's too much right now. Wood frog theology. Turn your eyes to the screen. Watch this video to see what I mean by that. Isn't that incredible? That works really, really great for wood frogs. But there's no such thing as Christianity cryogenics. God says, don't put your frogs in the freezer. He didn't design us to hit the pause button for later. The master builder desires for us to be investing in our homes today because he knows that the neglect of today massively impacts the outcomes of tomorrow. You see, today we're laying foundations, we're snapping chalk lines. Are we investing today? Solomon ends this passage of Scripture uh, using the image of archery. Uh, he finishes the psalm with a promise of how God will use the blessing of his handiwork both now and into the future. He says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. 
there are three things to remember about arrows. The first is that they have to be shaped. The second is that they have to be aimed. And the third, they have to be released. Let me leave you from, uh, with a quote from uh, Derek Kidner, who talks about this whole concept of arrows and releasing arrows. Derek Kidner says, Arrows must be shaped and sharpened. In Solomon's day, you didn't go down to the local sporting goods store and buy arrows. Neither did you find them lying on the ground. Sticks are not arrows by nature. They have to be carefully shaped and sharpened. Children don't grow into straight, sharp arrows by being left to themselves or to the TV set. It takes diligent effort on the part of a wise father to bring them up in the training of the Lord. Arrows must be aimed and released. Arrows left in the quiver or shot haphazardly in any which direction are not of much good. In fact, they can be the cause of great harm if they're not aimed carefully. This implies skill and direction. The archer must know his target and have sufficient skill to fire his arrows into it. The point of rearing children is not to keep them for ourselves. Many parents lose their children because they try to hang on to them. Our goal is to aim them at the target, Satan's kingdom of darkness, and release them as burning arrows for Jesus. I think that's something we can all say amen to. Well, today, consequently, we're sending out a few arrows of our own. Um, Right after this service, uh, we have a mission team leaving for inner city Detroit. So I'm going to ask that team to actually uh, work your way up. All the members of that team, there's almost 50 of them, so we're going to have to make some room room on the stage. As they're coming up, um, I just want to tell you just a a few things about this trip as we commission them. Each year, the the Student Ministries of Highland serves um, on a mission trip. We spend two years domestically somewhere in the inner city uh, or rural Kentucky a couple years ago. And every third year, we spend time overseas in an international destination. Last year was in Cuba. And uh, we, we try to hit a number of benchmarks as we serve. We try to work with the least of these that um, uh, comes out of Matthew 25. So we try to work with homeless and soup kitchens. Um, we're also going to be working with uh, Tyler St. Clair. You might remember he came and, and shared with us about a year ago. And he's one of our supportive missionaries that's uh, starting a church in Detroit. Um, we work with children, and we do things with kids. We do a VBS kind of program. We also do some outreach aspects so people know that we're not just a relief organization, but we want people to know uh, the, the, the most important news that Christ is the Savior of the world. And we also work on work projects. So there are projects that we work on that help um, restore and rebuild and that we can be the hands and feet of Christ. And those are all benchmarks that we're going to be meeting this week in Detroit. So our Detroit team, uh, again, um, they, they were here early and they packed up the trailer and the bus. You might have seen that sitting over there. So today, uh, right after the service, we're going to be heading out there. So um, we're going to commission them by praying for them. And then um, our team is going to be uh, heading out shortly after that. So let me pray to close our, uh, our sermon time, but also to pray for our mission team. Father, thank you so much for this time that we can share together in your word. Thank you for the reminder, Father, that you truly are the chief architect and builder and designer of our homes and our families and of our very lives. Thank you again for the incredible act of love showed on the cross through the son of, uh, your son, Jesus. 
Let that be the example. Let that be the heartbeat of our homes and of our very lives. Help us, God, to invest well. Help us to uh, be intentional and to have a plan and follow your blueprints. God, as we look at these uh, students here and as uh, a number of us set off um, in just a few minutes for inner city Detroit, God, I pray that you would go before us. We are just reminded of uh, this imagery of arrows being sent out strategically to land in spots that can be influences for your kingdom. And God, there is many, many, many arrows standing behind me this morning that you wish to use in mighty ways, Father, for your kingdom and for your great glory. God, I pray for travel mercies. I pray for safety. And I pray most of all that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will go forth with great power. And we know that the efforts that you have uh, called us to put our hands to will not return void. And so I do ask that you would allow all these um, students and these adult leaders to use the gifts that you've given them to invest in ways that exceed their human capability. Got to pray for the families while they're back home, that you would just give them a sense of peace and allow the, the family of Christ of Highland to continue to band together this week and to be praying for our team. Thank you, Lord, for this great opportunity we have to go serve. We commit it to you. We trust you with it. And whatever you have in store for us, we accept that, Father, and we look forward to all that you wish to do. So we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.